All right, good morning, everybody. We'll go through a few announcements before I introduce Wes here. Um, uh, today, I think it's today, right? The the youth, no, when is it? I'm sorry. Next weekend, next Sunday. So what's coming up next here, Aaron? Sorry, I, got, I, I, I jumped the gun, didn't I? That's okay. The youth event will be coming up for, it's their mystery dinner. Um, there's flyers out front if you want to grab one of those. Um, there it is. February 26th, uh, 4 to 6.30 p.m. Uh, join them for that if you want to come out for that. Uh, for ages uh, 13 through, uh, is that 18? Yeah. There we go. I need to turn. My eyes aren't good enough to see back there. Um, also, for those who are, uh, have uh, signed up for security team and who have signed up for the greeters, we will have our meetings next weekend. Uh, Sunday after second service, so we can kind of go over some things with you about that, and uh, for security, some training, and then also for greeters, some training. We really want you to know uh, what your stuff before we put you out there. Um, and then, is there anything else coming up? I think that's it. All right. Our first contact with uh, Pastor West, and I don't even know contact, this is our first contact personally, was out at a senior pastor's conference. I heard him speak out there. Um, and he was sharing, and this was in 2004, 2005, right around there, after you had set up the wire place for, you know, it was a wire compound where the kids would come in at night, um, right around that time, I think. And it just really touched our hearts, and we got a team together. We were getting ready to go, and we wanted to go help and be a part of it any way we could, and we got our shots and, and everything, and then it just all kind of just fell apart. We didn't have enough money or whatever. I didn't know what happened to it, but... And we just sent the money instead of sending us over there to, to, to be any part of it. And um, anyway, as I was reading up on um, far-reaching ministries, it started actually in 96 was when you started ministering to the Christians that were being persecuted during the war in uh, South Sudan. Is that correct? And then in 98 was when far-reaching ministries was founded uh, as going to be a permanent full-time ministry over there. And what I gained from last night's dinner and I don't know if the, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but um, it's just an interesting thing how before you were saved, he was in the Marine Corps too and got saved in the Marine Corps, um, but wanted to go to Vietnam and couldn't get there because the war was over and all. And there was this idea of going to be a soldier of fortune in a sense and just doing what he wanted to do in the Marine Corps, but finding a, a better avenue for him to do it. And it's interesting as God gets a hold of him and he's now doing those things um, and for Christ, though, he's going over as a soldier of fortune for the Lord. And uh, what a beautiful ministry that is. And so we're very blessed to have you here. And um, we thank you for coming out all this way. Um, I've strictly warned him not to recruit anybody for his ministry. The, no, I'm kidding. Couldn't find a better ministry to join if you were ever in, uh, so inclined. And so um, we'll be praying and, and listening. And, and uh, thank you, Wes, for coming. Come on up and share. Thank you. Well, folks, uh, blessed to be here this morning. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed the drive out, just seeing the area. Uh, I'm going to jump right into it this morning. Uh, we're not a small organization. We're actually an extremely large organization. We're operating in uh, 38 countries around the world. We got about a thousand people in the field as far as missionaries, pastor, people in the underground, and chaplains for the South Sudan Army. What we have 
recently most been known for is we were training combat chaplains for the South Sudanese Army uh, for the last uh, 23 years. And uh, it was very intense training guys. We'd get the guys up Monday through Friday and we'd run them nine miles. And then they would have eight hours of class time and two and a half hours of study time daily. And they do, would do that for a solid year. And then once they graduate, they would be deployed to forward operation units in the South Sudan Army where we went into very, very heavy combat. All of my men were armed. All of us went into battle. And I know that seems a little strange, folks, but as we get the message, I think you'll have a little bit of a better understanding of what I'm talking about there. Uh, but we won't be talking about that today, folks. Things really changed for us uh, when Afghanistan collapsed. Uh, when Afghanistan collapsed, we have a division of our ministry. We call it Ghost Operations. It's the invisible hand into the closed world of radical Islam. And we have over 400 missionaries and pastors in the underground of nine of the 10 most dangerous Islamic countries in the world. But we had 22 missionaries in the underground in Afghanistan. And I got a call from our Dutch office, and they said, Wes, they'll all be killed for their faith. Uh, and uh, when they said this to me, uh, they had shared with me that one of the missionaries over there had led three Islamic families to Christ. They had gone into hiding, but the Taliban found the three families and killed mother, father, children, even down to the babies. And uh, so I went down to my staff and I said, guys, we're going into wartime operations. And uh, one week later, five former Navy SEALs would fly in, three former Marines, all Special Forces, one Army Green Beret, and one brother with the CIA. And we planned operations into Afghanistan. Shortly after after that, I would send in two teams simultaneously. They'd be 20, par 20 hours apart by land, uh, but the first one would fly in at a chopper and land at 12,000 feet and would deploy Marines and SEALs. I went with the second team, and we were told we were going to be climbing 2,000 feet, but we ended up having to climb to 11,500 feet to get to our location, and then we launched our drones. And what we're looking for, guys, is what's called a rat line. A rat line is an escape route of how to get people out of a country, truly the most difficult climb I've ever made in my life, and I think every one of the guys there said it was the most difficult climb they had ever uh, done. Uh, when you're going up this mountain, there are no mountain trails. They didn't know the name of the mountain. Uh, they said there were too many of them. They didn't name them there. Uh, they have a ibex, which is a very rare mountain goat with massive horns, and probably 5% of the mountain would have what you would call an ibex trail, which is about six inches, and it has shell and uh, sand and gravel sliding into it. And if you miss a step, you literally fall a thousand feet and you die and I was coming down the side of one mountain all of a sudden I began to hear sliding behind me and I didn't have time to think I just reached back and I grabbed and I caught our interpreter as he's going off the side of the mountain and uh, when we got off the mountain so guys I can't tell you what we're doing because we're in an ongoing operation right now uh, all of our toenails were black with the blood that was under them because of the difficulty of that climb I lost two toenails on that mountain that actually completely fell off and fortunately they grew back sometimes they don't grow back you know uh, we had one brother by the name of Rodney. Rodney was with the elite SEAL Team 6, 22 years with the SEALs, 12 years with SEAL Team 6, and 13 years with the CIA. And I believe that he lost three toenails on that mountain, so that gives you an understanding of how difficult the climb was. But then the Lord really began to do miracles, guys. And we got a call from YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and they said, our country director is in the city of Maz. The Taliban knows he's there. They're going door to door. They're going to find this kid within two hours. And I said, guys, two hours 
hours is not a lot of time. You should have got a hold of us a long time before this. The, the Taliban had written a very graphic letter to this kid. They said, we're going to butcher you. We're going to slaughter you. There's absolutely no forgiveness. You're a, a traitor to Islam. And uh, on my staff, I have Luke. Uh, Luke spent 14 years in the Marine Corps. He was in Special Forces, 22 years with the FBI. Uh, he uh, speaks fluent Arabic in multiple dialects. He's tested at genius level, plus he's got about four or five other languages under his belt. And I had Brent, who was in 2nd Force Recon in the Marine Corps, which is also the lead of the Marine Corps Special Forces. And uh, I said, guys, do we have any assets in this part of the world? And I think that we were able to get a hold of some Pakistani mercenaries. And uh, an hour later, they showed up at the door. They got the kid. They got him out of there. Uh, had they got there an hour later, they would have killed this kid. Uh, but then we got a call from Heather Mercer. And some of you might remember that name. Heather Mercer is a very famous missionary. She was imprisoned by the Taliban back in 2000, uh, was released when U.S. forces went in in 2001. And uh, she called up and she said, I have uh, 20, I believe it was uh, 26 people in country. She goes, they're all believers. They will all be killed for their faith. Can you guys help us? So we put together an operation and we went in and got all 26 of those out. But the one that surprised me the most, guys, is we got a call from Shannon Spann. Uh, Mike Spann, her husband, was the first CIA officer killed in Afghanistan back in 2001. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It really troubled me. Uh, Mike had been a Marine Corps officer. Uh, he was in Special Forces. He was recruited by the CIA. Shannon was also recruited by the CIA. When the U.S. invaded, uh, they were with the Alpha Team, which was the first team to go in. But they had met at the farm, which is the training base for CIA recruits, and fallen in love and got married and had three children. And uh, Shannon called us up and she asked, uh, told us that she had 28 people in country. They were not believers, but they'd all help the U.S. government and uh, they would all be killed would we help them. And I was not in the office at that time. Brent called me and said, Wes, what do you want to do? I said, let's green light the operation. And we went in and we got them out. And guys, uh, Shannon has become an integral part of our team, but she flew out to Southern California where our U.S. office is to meet with me. And uh, she said that, you know, when Afghanistan began to collapse. She was getting a tremendous amount of people out of Afghanistan, but being former CIA, she could go walk into any station office in the world and get information. And she was getting a lot of people out, but she said when the last U.S. aircraft left, she could not get anybody out of Afghanistan. And she was walking around one night, she was praying, and she was saying, Lord, what do I do? And the Lord said, Shannon, why are you going to the world? Why are you not going to my people? And she goes, God, I don't know your people. Well, the Lord gave her a name of a gentleman by the name of Bob Shank. I personally do not know him, folks, but I understand that he wrote the master's program. And Bob said, you need to call Far Reaching Ministries. And so she called us. Now, guys, after she called us, uh, she went and she read our website. And if you're not a Christian and you don't understand spiritual things, our website would probably be confusing to a lot of people. Uh, we probably look a little bit more like something like Blackwater than we do a Christian mission organization. We're involved in five different wars around the world. And we have a lot of former special forces on our, on our staff. And uh, so she called up Bob and she said, Bob, who is Wes Bentley? Who is Brent? Who is Far Reaching Ministries? And he said, Shannon, if my family were in Afghanistan, these are the two men that I would want to go and get them. And, so, and guys, one of the great things about that, we had the military training and our staff, we had a lot of the intelligence, but not the level that we needed. Uh, but Shannon has become a part of our team. And uh, as of just a couple of weeks ago, we've gotten over 1,750 people out of Afghanistan. The 
problem that we're having, though, is there's 3,500 more requests to extract people out of Afghanistan. And uh, all foreign governments, the U.S., all foreign agencies, to our knowledge, have pulled out of Afghanistan. We're the last people there. And I really believe that God has put us there for those purposes. Uh, we were also able to rescue the first female Supreme Court justice, and that was a very vital rescue because uh, that the Taliban really tries to make examples of women. And one of the things that they do when they are going to kill a woman, they gang rape her first. And the reason they say they do that is because it keeps them from going into paradise. It's just an excuse for being a completely despicable human being. And uh, once they've raped the woman, they turn them upside down. I've actually witnessed it, and they cut the throat of the young lady nude. And so we were able to send an operational team and get her out. Uh, guys, one of my favorite people in the Word of God is the prophet Jeremiah. And there's a lot of reasons why Jeremiah is really unique among prophets of the Lord. He's not only a prophet of the Lord, but he's a priest of the Lord. And what is unique about that, there are only three prophets in the Old Testament that were priests. It was Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Ezekiel. And the job of the priest is to bring people into close fellowship with their God. Well, for 40 years, Jeremiah labors to win the people to to God, to come back to their God, to repent. And guys, for 40 years, the children of Israel refuse, and God sends the Babylonian Empire and crushes them and takes them off into exile for 70 years. And you know, one of the things that I realized about Jeremiah, and I think many believers need to take note about this, they call Jeremiah the weeping prophet because of the trouble that he had in his life. And uh, yet Jeremiah uh, would never live to see the fruit of his life, but he would have great fruit in his life. He would just never live to see it. Out of Jeremiah's life would come Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Out of his life would come the prophet Daniel. Out of his life would come Ezekiel. And when King Nebuchadnezzar built a golden altar and commanded that the whole world bow down and worship it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had seen what happened when a nation reject uh, Jeremiah's call to repent. And they know that King Nebuchadnezzar has the power of life and death over them, but they say, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we're not even careful on how we're going to answer you about this. Our God has the ability to deliver us, but whether he delivers us or not, we will not bow down to your God. And King Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown into the burning furnace. They're delivered by God, and an entire generation knows who the living God is. And guys, the Bible says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar feared the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Seventy years later, it will be Daniel's turn. Once again, he's required to worship a false god. Once again, he refuses to do it, and uh, and he's thrown into the lion's den. And if you know anything about the Babylonian lions, there's a set of commentaries called the early church fathers, people that were from like 300 years to 600 years after the birth of Christ. There's a lot of knowledge that we don't get in modern commentaries, but they said that the Babylonian lions were bred for ferocity. They take the most fierce male lion, the most fierce female lion, they would breed them, and then they would keep them in a near state of starvation so when people were thrown in there, they would absolutely tear you apart. But God delivers uh, Daniel. And once again, another generation knows who the living God is. And guys, but then it's also the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is probably most relevant for our generation today. We're living in a time where there's a great lie in this nation, especially by this administration. And one of the things that they're saying is that the Christian church is persecuting the gays, the transgender, the homosexual community. And guys, by and, fall, by and large, that's a complete lie. The truth of the matter is, the church just didn't care. They were supposed to. See, the Bible says that when people are in sin, and Ezekiel says this twice in the book of Ezekiel, he says, we're to go to those that are in sin, we're to warn them about their sin, 
And if we don't go and we don't warn them and they die in their sin, God will require their blood on our head. And the church just ignored it. They didn't want to do it. In my personal life, I have led 10 homosexual women to Christ. And guys, I always say, I want you to hear me out. First of all, you're going to tell me you were born this way. But the problem with that argument is the serial killer will say he was born this way. The pedophile will say he was born this way. The young man that wants to sleep with every woman that he can will say he was born this way. Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born out of a life of sin into a life of Christ. And see, they're, te- they're propagating this lie. And guys, it's coming to the point that they want to make it uh, a crime if you witness to someone about being in sin. They actually want to put people in prison. You know, it's interesting before, because before I got saved, you know, I I joined the Marine Corps when I was in the 10th grade. I'd lied about my age. And, uh, you know, guys, I like to fight. Uh, you know, my brother Rick told my mother many years after I got saved, he said, Mom, when Wes left to join the Marine Corps, he goes, I didn't want him to ever come back again. He goes, he was literally the meanest man I have ever met in my life. And he said he was he was extremely cruel with his words, and he would fight people, and he would beat them very severely. He said, but when he came to Christ, he changed so much, I did not want him to ever leave again. And I was a competitive shooter in the brains. Uh, you know, my coach had actually said to me, he goes, Wes, you are so good with weapons, I think you could shoot the Olympics. And I told him, I said, I, I don't want to shoot the Olympics. I just want to shoot other people. So I had no interest in going down that road there. But when I came to Christ, it literally changed everything about me. Jeremiah says in chapter 10, verse 23, he says, uh, and it doesn't read well in the King James Version. It does read very well in the NIV Version. He says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his footsteps. It means that our lives do not belong to us, guys, that they're supposed to belong to the Lord. In this generation today, we're in a time in our nation where people have lost their moral compass. And guys, you know, uh, I, I'm sure that you're hearing a lot of what we hear, but you know, I have a young lady that volunteers for her. She's in the medical field. And there's a family out there right now trying to get their four-year-old a sex change. Now guys, we all know that no four-year-old understands that. They want to be seen as a hero of the movement, and they are willing to sacrifice their child. This is absolute perversion, and yet people are cheering them on and stuff. You know, my grandson wants to be a puppy, and he's three years old. Should I put a tail on him and inject him with dog hormones? It's absolutely stupidity. They had a school where they brought strippers in, strippers, to kindergartners and had them put dollar bills in the G-strings. And when we consider this to be all right, we have lost our moral uh, moral compass as a nation. You should not be quiet about it. Now, you need to be careful about not doing things at work where you're going to get fired. But we need to be vocal about talking about what sin is. And the Bible tells us, see, it doesn't matter whether you're a homosexual, an adulterer, a thief, a liar. The Bible tells all the things that can separate you from Christ. It didn't say just go to the homosexual community. It says go to all people and share. And, you know, guys, I remember before I got saved, you know, I like to fight, I like to drink. And, you know, people would come up and try to share Christ with me and they'd say, you know, Wes, uh, you like to get drunk, you like to fight. And I didn't say, you know, that's a hate crime that you're telling me that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just born genetically this way to do this. I, you know, that's absolutely stupidity. I agreed with him. I knew I was. One of the great things, we used to go out street witnessing all the time when I got saved. And the one thing I loved about when we'd go out and share, guys, we'd go out and we'd share a lot 
with any military guys we ran into, but there are a lot of Navy around us, and you know, you'd start to share Christ with them, and a lot of them would say, well, I'm a good person. I never went up to ever a Marine and confronted him about a sin, and he said, I'm a good person. They all said, yeah, we're sinners. You know, they could admit to it at least. Uh, we all knew that we were in sin. And uh, But Jeremiah gives us an understanding of why he has this walk with the Lord, because in Jeremiah chapter verse, uh, 15, verse uh, 15, uh, 16, he says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of rivers. I never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was heavy upon me. And Jeremiah had a very pure life, guys. And as believers, we are supposed to be defined by our relationship with the Lord, not by our relationship with a football team or a motorcycle. But this is how people define themselves. They wear on their chest the rock band they love. This is how we define themselves. It's not the way we're supposed to be as Christians. I have seen so many believers go to the mission field. And guys, I, I honestly believe that 95% of all missionaries I see on the field today are fairly ineffective for the gospel. They become humanitarian organizations, they do some good works, but they're not sharing the love of Christ with the lost world. And one of the great problems that we're having out there is everybody is looking for fame and fortune. People go out on the mission field, they're out there for one year, and they write about their great mission exploits. Now, guys, the books are always self-published. They don't have a real publisher publishing them. And between the ones they give away to their family and the ones that they sell at the few churches they go to, they have a distribution of about 75. Why? Because it's not a work of the Holy Spirit. When Brother Andrew, and many of you may not remember that name, but when Brother Andrew came out over 40 years ago, he wrote the book God's Smuggler, and I believe it sold in the tens of millions of copies. Why? Because it was a work of the Holy Spirit. In my own personal life, guys, I've had over 20 people try to get me to write a book. And if the Lord ever tells me to, I will. But see, I feel like that we have the only book that we need right here for a lost world. I had a Hollywood producer come in and spent 10 hours with my wife, Vicki, and I'm like, I, I couldn't get rid of the guy. I'm like, Vicki, how do we get this guy out of here? You know, he won't leave, you know. But he spent 10 hours trying to convince us to do a movie about our lives, and he wanted to make me out to be this Christian superhero. And I told him, no. I said, you don't understand. I'm not the hero. It's Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that no flesh shall glory in the presence of God. And he said, I'm giving you what everybody dreams of. I said, everybody that's carnal. See, guys, if we get our reward on earth, don't expect great treasures in heaven. We're not supposed to be working for fame and fortune. It's a real problem within the body of Christ today. Every pastor wants to write a book today. Every single pastor. And I'm not saying there isn't some value in it. But again, guys, we need to understand what is the motivation of why we are doing these things. Is it a work of God? You know, uh, Jeremiah would go through some great times of hardship in his life, guys. There's times that he was extremely discouraged. And in chapter 12, he comes to a point that he's just had it, and he doesn't want to serve anymore. And God, you think that after all that Jeremiah would be going through, 40 years of service, and yet no fruit that he could really see. And God says to Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah... If the foot soldiers have wearied you, how will you handle mounted horsemen? And the image that he's given us is most of you have probably seen the movie Braveheart. And if you remember when Willis, William Wallace goes out to fight the English army, the Scotsmen have a lot of bravado. They're, they're ready for a battle. But most of them don't even have a real weapon. They have farm tools. And then all of a sudden, the English army comes up over the hill, all in chainmail battle armor, battle axes, battle swords, spears, arrows, and the Scotsmen become afraid. 
But then comes the heavy cavalry, massive horses covered in armor, men in armor, and they come charging at you with these long lances. And this is the image that God gives Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah, if the foot soldier has wearied you, how will you handle mounted horsemen? And guys, one of the things that we need to understand is God expects his people to be strong. When King David is dying, he's talking to his son Solomon. And guys, I've seen a lot of men die. I've had 70 men die on my staff in the war in southern Sudan. I've been with a lot of men when they've taken their last breaths. And they always say, tell my wife I love them or tell my mother. If, it's not, if they're not married, this is my mother. That's what they always say. But what does David say to Solomon? He said, Solomon, be strong and therefore prove yourself to be a man. And what God is really talking about is spiritual strength. Now, guys, I'm going to share something with you. And please understand, I don't mean it to be a boast. I'm trying to make a strong spiritual understanding for you here. About 12 years ago, I broke a weightlifting record in a gym, and I didn't even know I had done it. I've always had extremely strong legs, and I was in the gym, and I was doing repetitions on the leg press, and I had 1,875 pounds on it, and I'd do like three or four reps of 10. And the head of the gym was a number two, Mr. California. He was a Christian brother by the name of Gus, and Gus came over and goes, Wes, how much weight do you have on this thing? I said, 1,875 pounds. He goes, how much can you lift? I said, I don't know, Gus. I've never tried. He goes, you want to find out? I said, sure. Well, we ran out of weight somewhere around 2,500 pounds. He goes, how much more do you think you can lift? I said, I don't know, maybe 500 more. He goes, brother, he goes, you broke the record of this gym at 1875. Now, guys, my point is, is being committed to athletics, I got back in the gym 12 years later. You know, it took me 12 years to get back in there, but I got back in there. And I was trying to do leg presses a few weeks ago, and 500 pounds was very hard for me. Now, I'm sure I can build up quite a bit again, but guys, age is taking over. I'm fading. But spiritual strength is very different. It doesn't fade. It grows with time. The more that you invest in the Lord, the stronger you will become. And what Jeremiah and the Lord are talking about is spiritual strength. In sharing with you guys, when the war in Ukraine broke out, I had just been in Russia in January. It's funny because I'd been going, I, I served for five years in Russia, 26 years in the South Sudan. Russia was always my first love. We had built seven Calvary chapels over there. And uh, I actually asked the Lord, am I supposed to get in this war? We're already involved in all these other wars. And God spoke to me in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 24, verse 10, it says, if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? One of the things that we need to understand, Christians have a great misunderstanding about the treasures of heaven. See, salvation is a free gift of God, but the rewards of heaven are earned. And if you never do anything for Christ in this life, why do you expect great rewards in eternity? The Bible says in my Father's house there are many mansions. But guys, it doesn't say they're all mansions. It says there's many mansions. I've often wondered how many one-bedroom flats or two-bedroom condos there are. And I think it's really strange to think that if you never serve Christ, you expect this great reward in heaven. Um, right now we're feeding 15,000 people a week in the Ukraine. We're building 100 temporary homes. we got about 70 of them done. And we're training the Ukrainian chaplains. But guys, um, I flew to Amsterdam on April 4th of last year. On April 6th, I had a dream. I have walked with the Lord for 46 years. 
And once I gave my life to Christ, there was never anything that I wanted in the world again. I never turned back. In 46 years of walking with the Lord, I've only had three other dreams that I felt God was speaking to me. And it was a very vivid dream, guys. I never remember my dreams, but I could remember every detail of this dream. And then I was looking for a Calvary pastor that had gone missing. Billy Rutledge was the pastor of Calvary Chapel Hatteras Island. And guys, Billy can be a really tough guy, but he's a strong man. And uh, he will go anywhere in the world for the gospel. And to explain to you how strong he is, he has cancer. And I, I think Billy, I think he told me he used to be six foot four. It might have been six foot two. Right now he's five foot eight because that's how much the cancer is eating his body. But he goes to all the hot spots in the world to share the gospel. And in my dream, he'd gone missing and I was looking for him. And I got to a certain city and I asked if he was there and they said he's not there. But they said, but there's a sniper here and he's killing a lot of people. Well, I was a professional shooter. I said, guys, I'll deal with this. And I did. And I continued to look for Billy and I couldn't find him. And I got to a certain city and they go, he's not here, but there's a sniper in a high rise building and he's shooting a lot of civilians, but we can't get to him because every time we get close to the building, he kills one of us. And I said, guys, I know how to deal with this. I'll deal with this. And I don't know why, but in the dream, when I entered the building, I was with another sniper and guys, I knew exactly who he was. Since I've woken up on April 6th, I can't remember. I've tried to. I don't know why the Lord wanted me to know in the dream, but he has not revealed it to me since I woke up. But I said to the guy, I said, listen, we're going to clear this building floor by floor. I'm going to take the lead, but you need to watch out because if we miss him, he's going to come up behind us and he'll smoke us. So you better be on your guard. And I got up to the 18th floor and I rounded the corner and there was a big hallway. And in the hallway, there was laying on the floor was just loose carpet and plastic sheeting was over the carpet and it was moving. Well, I immediately raised my weapon to fire because I thought there was a sniper in a concealed position. But the Lord told me, don't fire. And so guys, I kept my weapon trained, but I walked over there slowly and I leaned down and I lifted up the carpet and under it were four little boys between the age of two and five. And they were so afraid. And I said to those boys, I said, where are your parents? They go, we don't know. And I said, do you boys want to come home and live with me? And all four of them got up and came and put their arms around my leg and started to hug me. And I woke up and I had tears coming out of my eyes. I have never in my life that I know of woken up with tears in my eyes. Matter of fact, it was 4.30 in the morning. My wife had got up at 3.30. She was studying and she was shocked. She's never seen me cry in my entire life. And she goes, honey, what, what is going on? I, and she goes, I've never seen you cry. The last time I think I cried was 40 years ago. I was in Southern California, and I went to an In-N-Out hamburger. And when I left, there was an extra cheeseburger in the bag. <laughs> I still get a little emotional when I think about it. <laughs> but that was the last time I can remember having a tear in my eye. And so I retold her the dream. And I said, you know, Vicki, I feel like it has spiritual meaning. I, I don't know what it means. Are the boys out there and I'm supposed to find them? We need an interpretation, and God gave it through two godly men. And guys, all over the Ukraine, parents went out to get firewood, to get water, to find food. They didn't come home. While I was over in the Ukraine, I've been twice this last year. We bought two new homes for orphanages for children. They're everywhere. The elderly in the Ukraine are committing suicide. 
You see, if they got a pension, a good pension is 200 a good pension, most are around 100 to $150. Their homes are destroyed. They don't know how to survive anymore. They can't rebuild. They're literally killing themselves. And the Lord has called us to care for these people. Now, guys, I'm going to take a turn here, and I'm sorry that I'm switching so much, but we're just involved in a lot around the world. In South America, Central America, we're in a war with the cartels down there. The gangs down there are selling children into prostitution. We have a home down there, and our one home is for children really from about zero to about six or seven years of age. Every little girl in there has been raped. I have a three-year-old that needs reconstructive surgery because of all the rape that she's gone through. Last week I was on the phone with the director, and we have a, a young girl that she's nine now, but she told us that when she was six or seven, her father started inviting five or six men into her home every night, and they would watch her shower. And then after they showered, they would take turns having sex with her. And the little girl told us that they would sodomize her so hard that she would pass out. And you would think that they would realize that, what are we doing here? But see, this is a reprobate mind. They would splash her with water, wake her up, and then the next man would take his turn. She also needs reconstructive surgery on the front and the back. I have a seven-year-old that's HIV positive that needs reconstructive surgery. A five-year-old that has syphilis that needs reconstructive surgery. I have a little boy by the name of Johnny that when we brought him in, he just seems so afraid. And our director, his code name is Gabriel. It's not his real name. We have to use it to protect him. But Gabriel said to him, Johnny, it's okay. You can sit down, son. And he wouldn't sit down. He kept saying, son, it's okay. And finally, the little boy started to cry. And he goes, I can't. It hurts too much. Now, guys, you know, one of the interesting things I've found in the last few years, when I get up and share stuff like this, sometimes people go to their pastors because they're offended that we have shared this on a Sunday morning. Well, first of all, if you are, you're in sin, and you should be ashamed of yourself. See, the Bible says that we're to care for those who are suffering as though we were there suffering with them ourselves. We are supposed to be people who have compassion and a love for the lost, and we are supposed to intervene. We're living in a generation where we are raising generations of effeminate men. They do not understand the role of which God has created them for. You know, guys, I was in Fort Lauderdale a number of years ago, and this NFL star gets on the airplane. Now, I don't know who he is. I don't have time to follow this. But everybody else on the airplane knows who this guy is. And he's right next to me, and he's got a Louis Vuitton over his shoulder. And I looked at the guy, and I go, wait a minute. I go, isn't that a purse? He goes, no, it's a bag. I said, well, my sister has the same one, and she calls it a purse, you know. See, we're living with generations of effeminate men, and we are not supposed to be made this way. We are made for battle. We were made to get in the thick of it. We are made to protect those that do not have the ability to protect themselves. And yet we're in a time when the body of Christ no longer understands that. See, while salvation is a free gift of God, the rewards of heaven are earned. And I wonder how you're going to feel when you get to heaven and say, well, I was so offended at that service. And God's going to look at you and say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Churches all over our nation are changing their spiritual doctrine to make it 
open to the homosexual transgender community. Why? They want to be popular. They don't want to be persecuted. But the Bible has a warning to these pastors. It says, if you take away from the words of my book, I'm going to take your name out of the book of life. And we're not supposed to be a cowardly people. You know, God expects his men to be strong. Guys, when I was in, um, first went to South Sudan, I went there to be a pastor, a Bible teacher. I had no intention of doing anything as a soldier. But rebels began to come down and attack villages around us. They hit one village and they took 58 children and crushed their heads against trees. They would rape all the women and take them into sexual slavery. And the Lord told me, you have got to start protecting these women and children. So we were building sanctuaries, as your pastor was alluding to. And at night, when the sun would go down, they estimated over 44,000 women and children a night were coming in looking for sanctuary against the rebels. Among the South Sudan army, there are great warriors, very tenacious in battle, but often they would fight until they realized they couldn't win a battle, and they would pull back and say, live to fight another day. And the rebels would come in and just decimate the people, and the Lord told me, you've got to deal with this. So I set the men down, I said, guys, I want you to understand something here. I go, it is not your job to save your life. It is your job to save their lives. We're men, they're women and children. If the enemy comes, not one of you guys is to pull off that line until we have evacuated every single woman and child. If you die, then you die. That is the role of a man. You know, guys, Christians have some real misunderstanding of the Word of God. And I share this with people, and people have a hard time understanding this. And I said, you know, I've never had a problem with having to take human life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't enjoy killing. I never have. I never will. But when men come to rape women and to sell them into slavery and to murder children and to rape them, we're going to do exactly what it takes to stop them. And people will come up to me and say, well, what about that verse that says, turn the other cheek? Well, turn the other cheek means take an offense for the gospel. It never meant us to allow women and children to be raped, to sold into sexual slavery. I don't know why the body of Christ doesn't understand that. As men, we have a God-given right to protect those that do not have the ability to protect themselves. Now, guys, we're going to show you a video right now. In the video, all of the children that you see in here have been rescued. And we want you to see what happens after we get them. We're trying to restore them. Let's go ahead and show that, guys. You know, one of the important things is that your spiritual compass has a right direction before you get involved in things so you know what to do. Luke and I were, was on the phone and I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago and I said, you know, Luke, I said, uh, I had hoped to get out of this life without having to kill a whole bunch of more people. But if it comes between a choice of these children or giving them back to their parents, we're going to do what it's going to take. Now, Luke being in the FBI, he goes, I'll be with you, brother. See, when the laws of man break down, there is a higher law, which is God's law. And when our nation violates all the laws of God, then we adhere to the higher law, which is to protect those that do not have the ability to protect themselves. One of the things that I have recognized in my own life, guys, is that Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of my faith. 
And I have to be willing to follow where he leads and do what he commands. I don't have any desire for personal recognition. I feel like it's a waste of time. Other than to the ability, it helps us to reach more people for Christ. But you as believers, God wants your faith to be alive, to be radiant. The Bible says, let your light so shine before men that they see your heavenly Father. And we are supposed to care and protect those that do not have the ability to protect themselves. Guys, I don't know what the greatest desire of your life is, but I will tell you what the greatest desire of my life is. I could be wrong, but I have long suspected I will not live out my natural life. Being involved in this many war zones, I have a feeling someday I will not return. And I told my mother, I said, Mom, if I don't come home someday, do not tell the world it was a terrible tragedy, it was an accident, something went wrong. You tell them I ran the race, I finished the course, and now there's in store for me a crown of righteousness. And guys, I want to encourage you, you need to be active in your faith. You need to be inviting people to church. You need to be sharing God's love with people. It's the love of God that compels people under repentance. You know, I run into so many Christians, they go, well, I don't know what God's will is. I go, 98% of knowing His will is right here. It tells you what to do. Go to the poor. Go to the weak, the orphans, the widows, those in prison, those sick. It tells us what we're supposed to do. There's the 2% that's mystical guys where God might lead you to a new city. But 98%, you know what you're supposed to do. And the Bible says that we are to share our faith. You see, it says, go into the world and make disciples of all men. People will come up to me and say, well, you know, Wes, it's just not my gift. I said, you know, that's interesting because the scripture says, go into the world and make disciples of all men unless it's not your gift. Only it doesn't say that, does it? Guys, the more you share your faith, the easier it becomes. And as you're faithful, God will be faithful. Now, if they reject it, we're done. You don't have to sit there and take abuse of someone screaming and swearing. You just walk away. The Bible says shake the dust off your feet. But you are required to go and share it. You should realize that you have the responsibility to go to every neighbor at least once and invite them to church on Sunday. Do you know that they say that 82% of all people who are invited to church will come? 82%. Just say, come to church and find me. I'd love to have a cup of coffee with you. And then let them hear the Word of God. I shared last night, the way I got saved is I was not interested in Jesus Christ at all. I got invited to a Bible study. And in my mind, I thought, there's probably some pretty good-looking Christian women there. That was the only reason I went to that Bible study. And guys, I remember the night I went there, it was on a second-story building. And I went up the stairs, and as soon as my eyes could see in the room, and I realized there were no women in the room, I froze. I just stopped. And I started slowly backing down the stairs, and I ran into the guy who invited me to church. And he goes, hey, Wes, where, where are you going? I said, I'm looking for the bathroom. He goes, oh, it's up there. And I remember thinking, you fool. You could have been out drinking tonight. You're going to be bored to death. But for the first time in my life, I heard the gospel. My parents had been religious, but 
people, the church we went to didn't have a relationship with Christ. They had religion. And for the first time in my life, I heard the gospel. And the scripture that got me is they says, what is the profit of man if he gained the whole world and he loses his soul? And I realized I was on the way to losing my soul. And I surrendered. I led my first guy to Christ six days later. I didn't even know what I was doing, guys. I called up a friend of mine. His name was Taylor. I said, hey, Taylor, I've got a case of beer. Why don't you come over to my room? And he came over, and I had 10 minutes worth of being taught the Word of God, and I'm trying to explain to him what they said to me. And we're drinking beer, and somewhere around can 12, he gave his life to Christ. And when I got back the next week, they asked me, said, so what happened this week? I said, well, I let a guy out of Christ yesterday. They go, what? Well, tell us about it, Wes. I said, well, I got a case of beer. I invited this guy over, and I noticed when I said a case of beer, their faces changed. And they said, uh, that's not exactly how you're supposed to do it. I said, it works, you know. <laughs> but the Lord did train me. Because we should be excited about our faith. While I was in the Marine Corps, I led probably close to 30% of my company to Christ, including my company commander. But what had happened is the guy saw the transformation in my life. Everybody knew I was going to, you know, when the we mounted up to go to Vietnam, and then the war, President Ford called it off, so we came back, and me and this guy named Duvall were going to go to Rhodesia and become soldiers of fortune. Everybody knew who I was. But when I became a believer, they saw the transformation. That's what the Lord wants in your life. He wants people to see the transformation. If you hold on to the old desires, the old flesh, you behave the old way, people will never see Christ. Christians get so mad over the most stupid things, angry. Every time we get offended, we just express it, and you lose your witness for Christ. And that's where you have to die to self, die that Christ might be born. Guys, when you leave this morning, we're going to give you an opportunity. And the first thing that I want to share with you is, if you decide to do this today, do not take it out of your church tithing. Your church needs your tithing. We're not a small organization. We're an extremely large. We put $11 million in the field last year, somewhere between 10 and 11. The reason we come and share is what Paul the Apostle said, not that we might receive, but that you might store your treasures in heaven. I want to share with you with about Latin America. Edward came and got me. And I make the guys who oversee different projects check on them once a week. Well, what happened was Gabriel was in Latin America, and he got a call from a senator. And the senator said, hey, I've heard about your work, great work. I could help you out, give you all the money you need. And Gabriel thought, wow, this is a prayer come true. And then all of a sudden, the senator said, all I need is two little girls a year. And Gabriel goes, what? He goes, they're not for me. I have a friend who has weird taste. And Gabriel goes, absolutely not. Now, I know they were probing to see if they could get him to compromise on two, they were going to take them all. I know what they were up to. And the senator goes, I can make life difficult on you guys. Well, guys, he did. About four days later, child social services came in and took 14 of our kids. And they said, you don't have enough money coming in. You have to have a certain amount from 25 to 66 kids. Well, we didn't have it. We were short $10,000 a month. And it is a law on the land. Nobody obeys it, but they were using it against us. And there were people from social services that called Gabriel and said, Gabriel, it's not us. 
it's the cartel, and they'll kill us. We don't have the power to fight them. Other people are on the cartel's payroll. Some of them were trying to get half the kids transferred across the country so they could make them disappear. And Edward had found out, so he called me, and, and Gabriel explained to me, and I said, well, how much are you short? And he said, $10,000. I said, well, if I send you 10000 can you get the kids back? He says, Wes, I have to show up for three months, and, you have, and then we have to have it every month after that. I said, well, if I send you th- the three months, can you get the kids back? He goes, yes. Guys, a lot of people said to me, Brother, you, you, you take care of so many people. This isn't your responsibility. I mean, you just can't take care of everybody. I said, I know that if I don't do this, we will lose these children. And having rescued them once, I'm not going to allow them to go back. While two of their little girls were at social services, they tried to hang themselves. And when the social services people asked them why, they said, we cannot go back to this lifestyle. They're eight, seven, eight years old, and they're trying to hang themselves. That tells you the the trauma that these children have been through. And guys, we're going to protect these kids. I don't want to. I don't want to have to go to guns. But if it means going to guns, we're going to guns. That's all there is to it. We're not going to let them take them. But today, if you want, you can sponsor one of these children, and you will get a yearly update on your child. Now we blocked out the faces. We cannot tell you the countries. We're going to be in a war with the cartels, guys. We got to be very careful about what we're doing. So. You can sponsor one of these children for $75 a month. In Ukraine, we have the Potatoes for Grandmothers program to feed the elderly. It's also $75 a month. And guys, we were setting up bread lines, and we'd have a line a quarter of a mile long to get a loaf of bread. People are so hungry over there, and we want to feed these people. And then we have our ghost operations, and these are people in the underground in closed countries. In Nigeria, we just took on 100 new missionaries. Uh, the Fulani tribe in Nigeria believed that they brought Islam to Africa. Well, they had one Fulani that converted to Christ, and they told him, deny Christ or we'll kill you. He refused to deny Christ. They skinned him alive. But over 100 Fulani came to Christ through that. We're now training them to send them back. And it's $75 a month to sponsor these. Now, I want to share with you guys, this is an automatic debit. It comes out on the third of each month. If it falls on a Saturday or Sunday, it goes to the following Monday. You cannot pick these up and walk away with them, because if you do, I will not know if they're sponsored. We have too many of them. You do have to fill out the paperwork. It shows name, address, phone number, sign it at the bottom. Voided checks worth best, because we don't pay fees, but you can use a debit or credit card. And guys, every Sunday, people come up to me and they ask me, they say, what if I want to do all three? Well, first of all, we're not asking you to do that. But guys, I recognize there are people out there that God is blessed with great wealth and may want to store treasures and they can tithe to their church. It will not affect their tithing and give above and beyond. And if you happen to fall into that category, then it's $225 a month. And if you don't have all your information, pick them out, fill out the form. My assistant will call you later. Let me close with this last thing, guys. And once again, I'm trying to, I want to make sure you understand. I'm not trying to boast, but I'm trying to make a strong biblical point. Um, I'm actually a wealthy man. Two years ago, I made $10 million on the stock market. $8 million went to the ministry. The reason I'm sharing that with you guys is I could buy a house on the ocean. I could round around in a Porsche or a Ferrari. But that's not the life I want to live. I have paid my own salary all the years I've been on the mission field. The reason I do it isn't because I need a job. It's because... I recognize the calling of Christ on my life. 
and I recognize that I have a responsibility to share my faith. And I know that I'm running a race, and the race is coming to an end, and I would rather be faithful and use my money to save children and other lives than to do this, to spend it on things I don't need. So if you want to do it, we'll be at the table, we'll help you, but I want to encourage you guys, you've been given this one precious life to live for Jesus Christ. If you throw it away, you will not get a second chance. God bless you, Pastor. Thank you, Wes, uh, David, for coming. Appreciate it. Um, just to ask that you'd prayerfully consider supporting these guys. Um, I know that that's not why they came necessarily, but I mean they do have a mission. As you watch those kids, um, you know, with the with the animal therapy, and I mean that's what that is. That's what all that is, and the stuffed animals and all, and the smiles and the laughing. So much trauma is being undone, and it's going to take a long time for all that trauma to be undone. If it ever gets undone, at least it'll balance out a little bit, and they'll have a, a hope of some kind of life. And so, please. Uh, just keep that in your hearts. If you can't make that decision today, um, I mean, I hope that you would be able to, to support. If you can't, you can go to their website anytime and, and do it. If you need to check budgets or whatever, I understand that. Um, but I do pray that you'd prayerfully consider uh, supporting these guys. I'm very grateful that they came to see us and share that with us. It gets us a little bit beyond Missouri and helps us to see a little bit beyond. We have our own problems. We have our own people right next door. We know that. We're ministering to them too and shining brightly, as he said. But um, to reach out um, as a paraministry, in other words, they don't have their own support system. They don't have a congregation. We're their support. And so um, as a paraministry, they rely on on that help uh, to keep that flow going and to keep the missions going. So anyway, thank you for um, listening and taking the time to prayerfully consider supporting them. And um, we'll pray now and close and ask God to bless their ministry with safety, but also uh, with uh, just wisdom as they, as they traverse all these strange and, and wonderful ministry opportunities they've been given. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for these men, um, all of them. Uh, it is a large organization. We pray for every single one of them the chaplains on the front lines, the people that are uh, covert, and the people that are uh, doing the administration side. Um, we, we lift them all up to you. We pray that you'd uh, refresh them spiritually, encourage them, give them the strength they need. Um, as Paul prayed and asked for prayer for boldness, I pray that you continue to give this ministry boldness. And um, Lord, we pray financially for them as well, not to only equip them with money, but um, which is necessary. We pray for quality uh, Christians, people that are equipped by you, filled with your spirit um, and bold to, to accomplish all that you've got for them. Um, and we pray that you continue to watch over this ministry. Uh, Lord, thank you for today. Um, we don't know how much longer we have to live, but while we're alive, we will minister. We will shine brightly. We will share the gospel with those uh, around us and in our sphere and, and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming.